Hello, I'm Michael Shoebridge, bringing you episode 13 of the Grumpy Strategist podcast. And it's actually a very lucky number 13, because for the first time, you're not just hearing Marcus Hellyer and me talking. We've got a guest on the podcast, and he's Dr. Tom Lovard, who is the founder and chief technology officer of C2 Robotics, a fantastic Australian company. So we'll have a conversation. Uh, welcome, Tom. A pleasure to be here, Michael. So the real reason I wanted to talk to you is I think you're doing something incredibly important for our country and, and for our security. And it's all about the small, the smart and the many. So we might just start. People talk about autonomous systems and everyone's very excited about them now in 2024. But you've been working in this area of technology for a couple of decades. How did you start? start working around autonomous systems and AI? Uh, great. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, my background was computer science and decided that I wasn't happy with uh, a career in IT and, and decided AI was, was where the future lied. And uh, this is when? The year 2000, I started right. my PhD. Uh, which was back when really AI was was a very fringe field and particularly machine learning was was a sort of a really not very well promoted and and people had a very limited expectations of what AI was going to do uh, I always believed in AI um, but it's it's taken a little while for, for that belief to, to manifest in in the rest of the world um, but I think yeah history's sort of played out um, pretty positively with with where AI has has gone in the last 25 years or so so for yeah. you it's been slow but if, if- if you started studying AI in your PhD back in 2000, that's pre the Apple iPod. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let alone so, the yeah, iPhone. Yeah, it was quite primitive. So, but I guess coming out of the PhD, um, you know, myself and another PhD uh, who, who went through the program with me founded um, a company and very quickly became embedded within defense autonomous systems uh, research. Um, and and pretty much since that point in in the early 2000s, that's where I've I've spent all of my my career developing systems and, and companies, uh, founding companies and growing companies, uh, leading companies in, in this autonomous system space. So yeah. This is another interesting point to me. So you're now yeah. at C2 Robotics, but you haven't really been an academic in the traditional sense. You've been a very applied academic. You've been founding companies that make things, make real products that big, big customers that the world knows well, like the US military, have been using for years. So I think the previous company you're with, uh, AVT Australia, made a lot of optical sensors. Correct. It's yep. still making them. It's been bought by a US company. Yep. But you've been supplying real powerful technologies that are in use for years. Correct. That's right. And so it's been a really interesting progression to see how the technology has evolved. I think I have always been a firm believer in autonomous systems and the potential of these systems to, to be really disruptive and, and very game-changing in terms of what the impact on defence strategy and, and tactics and essentially the whole way we fight wars. You know, I, I could see this coming for quite a while, but I think it's only been in the last few years that we've, we've really reached a transition point where the rest of the world has suddenly woken up and realised how powerful these systems are and how disruptive they are for our traditional ways of, of operating. Yeah. I, I can imagine you would have been treated as some kind of science fiction very oddball for for some some of your time and now you're seeing things come to pass that you probably have known would for some time but now people are taking this far more seriously yeah well i guess as a as a smart business policy was always to have these visions in your head but you didn't say them too loudly mm. um, of how disruptive these systems were going to be because you you would end up seeming very oddball or these these sort of you know zealots of of 
the future. Whereas mm. I think now those those things are undeniable. We we see them in the world in in the Ukraine and and the Red Sea and places like that where traditional defense systems are struggling to keep up with with the pace of these autonomous and remote systems. Well, to me, it's a little mm. bit like. Uh, World War One. Just before World War One, you know, the motor car is a pretty high technology, sexy item. The aircraft is brand new. You know, first flight in 1903, and then boom, along comes World War One. It wasn't the military leaders that said aircraft are the thing of the future. They grudgingly let a few be used. It was the military users, the people that were soldiers that became the first pilots, that really rapidly found new uses for these things. You know, dropping hand grenades out of them, strapping rifles to the top wing. And then by the end of the First World War, things that became very familiar had been brought into being really quickly. Are we at that moment now with autonomy? Yeah, so I think what we see now is really just the tip of the iceberg. So for me, the technologies that we see being used in, in Ukraine, for example, I think they are just the first drops in the ocean of, of how this technology will evolve in the decades to come. So it's very hard to predict what that's going to look like, even from my position where I've sort of lived and breathed this for, for 20-something years. The technology is moving so rapidly now, but I think what is pretty much guaranteed in my view is that it will change quickly and it will get a lot better so that the lessons that we're learning from the Ukraine and and the Red Sea and places maybe we don't want to learn too many immediate lessons from that but the lesson we do want to learn is that these things are going to be here to stay and they're only going to get more disruptive Um, and so yeah we need to plan on on that being a fact Yeah well some of the there are some echoes from that experience with aircraft individual pilots strapping rifles to top wing of the biplane Yeah and Ukraine, yeah, are doing yeah. very similar things. Of yeah, it's it's pretty crude. Uh, many of the things that they're doing out of necessity, and it's those frontline users who are there at the heart of battle who are innovating and who are experimenting and disrupting and it's, it's all well and good to do it in a demonstration in a nice cosy army Con- base in, in Australia or, yeah, yeah. whereas these are frontline engagements and, and they're proving some very interesting outcomes and again I've seen a lot of sceptics of like hey the Russians aren't really a, a serious adversary we're not really seriously able to learn the lessons in our systems from that but I, I think that that's a very naive uh, position to take that if, if, we, if we don't learn those lessons the yes. next generation of these systems will be yeah. even more challenging and more more difficult to, yeah. to counter. Well, so, Tom, yep. you can't say this because I know you know you've got some actually pretty productive partnerships with people in the defence organisation. But I was quite alarmed when I heard Angus Campbell say publicly how much effort the Australian Defence Organisation is putting in to make sure it doesn't learn the wrong lessons from the war in Ukraine. I would love to hear him talk about the effort they're putting in to learn the right lessons. Anyway, this idea that things are real in autonomous systems that can be armed or unarmed. Tell me about the actual, the main product I'm interested in this time. I know you make a couple. You make a, an aerial system called Ogre uh, and you make an underwater unmanned vessel called Speartooth. Tell me about the Speartooth. What, what is it? So Speartooth was born out of a very conscious decision to try and build a technology or a capability that could project power from Australia's strategic interest area and actually create an effect that was this, this massive scale effect at a price point and a manufacturing readiness level that could impact our strategic situation in the very near term. So we looked at a lot of different technologies and the underwater 
space was one where there was a lot of benefits in terms of the way that a small platform could actually traverse very large distances. Uh, it's very, very efficient. Um, the efficiencies we're able to get to, to, to project power over very long ranges. So from a, a, an underwater vessel, it looks like a, a, mid, a midget submarine, basically. Um, it's probably the size of a big caravan sort of tow, when we tow it behind the cars to, to launch it. But it's, it's, it's small enough that two people can essentially just put it in the water. A, a single 20-foot shipping container can hold two of these these Spear 2 systems and two people can just pop it in the water from any boat ramp or any facility. So it looks, it's, it looks like a fairly fat oversized torpedo but a bit sleeker correct yeah, yeah. that's exactly yep a good, good description so yeah. and yeah i think it's been an incredible collaboration between ceta robotics and our customers in the australian defense force to develop that and i think what it has shown is that in a very short space of time we've gone from something concept on paper to a high level system that is essentially at what we would consider to be a minimum viable product level so if so if there was a conflict next week or next month would you be able to say to the Australian military, this is a system you can use. I absolutely believe that, that would be the case. I think if our military was in the position of the Ukraine, we would be producing them in very high numbers today. So mm. uh, we are producing so, them in reasonable numbers, but I think, uh, yeah, the goal is is to, to really increase that. Uh, but I think we could do that So you today. talk about range. You mm. probably don't want to give me an actual figure, but if I said a couple of thousand kilometres range, yep. uh, would that yep. be yep. A, so achievable the, now? Yep. The goal was to be able to to project power presence into the strategic interest areas of Australia from the Australian mainland. Mm. And that's the sort of ranges you need to achieve that. And we do absolutely believe that, that Spear Tooth can achieve those outcomes. So, mm. yeah. And another real bugbear of some of the very expensive, large uncrewed systems is their dependence on things like GPS or satellite communications. How do you deal with that problem with a small undersea vessel? Well, as soon as you're under the water, you don't have really any access to radio communications or, or GPS and things like that. So uh, it needs to have a very high level of autonomy so i think there's a there's a you know sort of the way in which uncrewed systems have evolved you know a lot of the things that the u.s has done in particular and, and a lot of current systems are essentially remotely operated by a pilot but they're in com- complete and constant control so with, we need that communication tether correct the whole that's time. right so yeah. whereas the spear tooth um just by the nature of it being a very covert subsea asset you don't have the opportunity to do that nearly in such a way so periodically we can we can make those communication links and 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 sort of navigation updates and things like that but it has a significant autonomous capability when it's below the surface so Mm. so when when we think about the black sea and the incredibly damaging russian naval losses that the ukrainians have inflicted without a navy before the war the story was the russian navy owns the black sea Uh, now in the middle of the war it looks like the Ukrainians have stopped the Russians from operating in the Black Sea and they've been destroying their ships in dockyards, in ports and at sea. But people will distinguish our part of the world from that. They'll say, look, the Black Sea is like a puddle compared to the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Is there another way of looking at this, which is it's all about coverage? To cover the Black Sea with manned systems even is possible if you haven't got very many because it's not very big. But if you're going to get coverage of a huge area like the Indian Ocean or the Pacific, you really need numbers. Correct. And I think that's where these small autonomous systems that have significant range is the enabling and critical factor 
factor in this theatre. So for me, for Australia, we have huge distances we need to cover and, and very, very large areas of ocean. No matter how many frigates and submarines we have, we can't be in all these places at once. Uh, and it's going to be very, very challenging for us to be able to have a presence in all of our areas of interest, all of our northern approaches, all, the, all of the possible places that, that we need to cover with traditional assets. So I, I think there's just no no amount of money that, that we could spend and no crew that we could could achieve to, to need to meet all of those those approach vectors. So using small but long range and highly persistent autonomous systems, and they could be things like blue bottles, um, they could be beer tooth and things, whether it's surface or subsurface, creating a presence that has a very long and enduring but also high numbers in multiple places at once allows us as Australia to to have a lot more presence in in these huge maritime areas. Mm. So yeah, I think I think in some ways there are very big differences from the Black Sea to the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, but it's in my opinion just amplified the requirement for or, or the impact of these kind of autonomous systems in these domains. So yeah, the small, the smart, and the many is a numbers advantage. Correct. Because even when the Royal Australian Navy gets its 11 general purpose frigates sometime late in the 2030s all going well, that's still really point coverage. You have to be very careful about where you send each ship, whereas if you've got a huge number of spear tooths. So well, you talked about uh, being able to manufacture these in Australia in numbers. When I looked at the announcement about the Navy plan, six large optionally crewed vessels, uh, the closest to an autonomous system being announced in that plan was the number given. If I said to you, so I want 5,000 spear tooth, these uh, small, long-range, unmanned submarines, is that the kind of scale of manufacturing you're planning? Absolutely. So everything that we did in our design and the way that we've we built uh, spear tooth was around this assumption that a small number of these vessels are not going to make that much of a difference. We need to have lots and lots of them to make a really big difference. Because of the yep. time and space. Exactly. They don't move the very quickly, um, yeah. but to give you the coverage and the, the impact, you, you need a lot of them. And I think that we made very deliberate design choices to not make the exquisite gold-plated system. What we see is the spear tooth is the 80-90% solution that does a lot of mission sets, but comes at a price point and with a manufacturing system behind it that uses relatively standard commercial manufacturing facilities that might be used in other defense and and oil and gas for example so it's made with a whole lot of consumer electronics and correct uh, correct supplies from the general manufacturing and electronics sector yep and then also with our manufacturing we've we've done some quite significant and in-depth work with some some manufacturers that we would aim to partner with. And I think we've got some upcoming announcements uh, that we hope to, to have in the near future on that. But, you know, there are existing facilities right now in the Australian industry domain that can produce numbers similar to the number that you, you indicated. If, yeah. if Defence needed to do that in a hurry, industry is there today with existing facilities that can can produce these kind of systems. So, And it's going to be the next couple of years that we can have this capability rather than the decades ahead. So that that's a big issue, I think, with the current surface fleet that we're not going to get a lot of new capability until the early 2030s we've still got a period between now and then that, well we have you know, a capability gap don't we with with yeah. the navy that, yeah. and it's not going to be filled under this new plan until sometime in the mid and late yeah. 2030s so that's 10 years from now but even if you could fill that gap today 
I think you still would be wanting to produce these kind of systems because it's, it's challenging to see how a lot of those traditional assets are going to be able to operate without these sort of high volume, low cost systems in the future environment. So I think it's well, the, these aren't the plan B. I think they're part of plan A, B and C as well. Yes. So I think it's, well, they're yeah. deeply complementary <coughs> to the traditional force structure. They may undercut the traditional force structure in the near future, but they're certainly at least essential complementary capabilities, yep. particularly when you look at the time and space problem in the Indo-Pacific. Tom, one thing we haven't talked about is what are some actual uses of the Spear 2? The Houthis are using small boats and explosives and armed drones to attack container ships and navy ships and the ukrainians are using armed jet skis you know three or four of them to simultaneously attack a big russian naval ship and sink it give me a couple of examples of spear tooth doing something nasty in conflict well i guess it's it's not just the nasty, I guess, from my point of view, to successfully achieve a military effect, you've got an entire kill chain from finding, surveilling, tracking, then prosecuting, assessing. And then there's all a lot of support functions as well, logistics and supply and things like that. So one of the really powerful things about Speartooth is that it's a very general purpose technology. So we have a, a large payload bay that is very multi-purpose and almost every defense user that we talk to has a different idea and different thought of where their system or their mission set. Right. So feel. if you've got a small team, yeah. you've deployed somewhere during a conflict in a remote piece of the world, you could resupply them. Yeah, I I guess yeah there's there's a large payload bay that that can then be used to whether it's holding onto a payload that that then becomes a surveillance payload whether it's releasing a payload that potentially could be some supplies there's a very broad set but I think yeah when we look at midget submarines that's been used since the first world war there's a huge range of of things that Ooh. you know even divers and ha- have been able to achieve quite significant strategic effects at times well the italians w- sunk a whole lot of allied shipping in the mediterranean yeah. with frogmen riding on torpedoes so the difference here is you don't need the frogman yeah and you don't need the crazy brave person and the training to get behind that yeah you need to have a lot of good systems in place to achieve outcomes like that but we do believe that that spear tooth has many many functions that can be applied today you know that would be very disruptive some of them are about going boom other ones might be it's pretending it's another naval vessel somewhere else so yeah i i think uh very much try to let navy and and our customers drive the the use case arguments i'm mm. not really at liberty to sort of talk no, too much about those i, I think that's where getting yeah, these in the theoretically hands of, of the military yep. user is mm. the thing because yep. the history of mm. those kind of creative uses of things like people riding on torpedoes or taking small kayaks into ports and yep. putting limpet mines on ships those are applications that you could imagine the spear spear tooth being used for without having to put uh, an ADF person in harm's way. Another interesting thing, I think, is the value of numbers. So this spear tooth, because it's long range, it can operate pretty much like a a profile of a, a conventional diesel submarine, which... It doesn't, it's slow to get somewhere because you can't use all the power to go fast because you'll run out of fuel like a diesel submarine. But you can pre-position and then loiter around and you could do that with numbers. So I'm imagining if the Ukrainians had these or if there was a conflict in our part of the world, surface ships would be being sunk by not just one of these, but maybe a simultaneous attack of 25 of them. Yeah, and I guess this is yeah where the theory and the, the doctrine and tactics of 
what can we do with these systems is is a very, very interesting discussion point of, yeah, where do we take these systems and, and what do they mean for our conventional systems operating in these theatres if this is the the threat that, that they're facing as well from the other side. So yeah. and, and if you have 20 or 30 systems, they can all have a totally different payload in them. So it's not like they're all doing the same thing. Yes. You know, each one could have a different tasking. Which if if you a- want to complicate a potential adversary's planning and operating, that diverse set of payloads could do that yeah and you have no idea what's in in any of them and it's a great industry opportunity as well for developing disruptive and and these asymmetric payloads that go along with the spear tooth is is a a huge opportunity that we're only just beginning to to tap the surface of and the existence of spear tooth actually enables this market to exist well and you don't need a big forward base Mm. that's protected with layers of security these things can be in a shipping container and pre-positioned in a port or a warehouse or a shed absolutely one of the things we learn in the ukraine is that one of the easiest places to find and kill a submarine is when it's sitting in its dock uh, very hard to do that for a system that's sitting in a shipping container that looks like every other shipping container yeah. is, is this shipping container the one that has yeah. the spear tooth or mm-hmm. does it just have a whole bunch of consumer electronics or, or yeah. clothing yeah well that practical application again back to the navy plan so our problem is we can't grow the navy big enough fast enough in fact we probably can't grow the navy big enough with just traditional uh, surface ships and submarines there's two ways of dealing with an adversary who has a bigger more powerful navy than yours one is to grow yours to compete pound for pound the other one is to be able to shrink theirs by the other kinds of systems you have and the spear tooth seems to me to be able to shrink other people's navies when you want to i would think that that's probably a pretty good summary so how how have you got to this point you mentioned a couple of other companies you know andrew making the large undersea vessel and oculus the blue bottle the surface vessel that that's autonomous you've been working with some pretty good partnerships in different parts of defense through things like autonomous warrior and then another small program with some army folk is that is that how you've got to this point so quickly engagement with real military users absolutely and i think this is an area where i do see some really positive stories about what the Australian Defence Force is doing to to build these kind of, of systems, the, the collaboration that we've had with our ADF customers. And I think that the, the systems that are being progressed in, in these long range high endurance maritime domain of as you mentioned like the ghost shark the blue bottle and the spear tooth they're extremely complementary platforms that um, augment each other and this, I think Australian Navy's and, and defence in general, I think, have, have been really forward-looking, I think, in developing the platforms that we have got. I think defence often gets criticism for why, what, what, which capability set we, we have produced. But we ha- now, here in Australia, have our sovereign industry able to produce some very significant platforms that complement each other and work together to actually create some very significant effects. I think what we haven't yet got to is the acquisition and deployment of them in high numbers, but I think we have all of the foundation. The risk profile of doing that now is very, very much lower than it would have been even two years ago. So yeah. It sounds to me like two things have changed. One, the powerful effect of systems like this in actual war is being demonstrated, both with the Ukraine war and with the Red Sea, the Houthis, are challenging the giant US nation. So the small, the smart, many has become such an obvious military capability. And if you you want an asymmetric capability against a larger, powerful 
powerful adversary because you haven't got enough scale. This seems the primary way to achieve that. So that's happened. But the other thing I think is you've moved from just demonstrating and prototyping to a point where you could do mass manufacture. So the small and the smarts there, but you can produce the many. Correct. Yep. So, and it's, yeah, it's, it's exciting to be at that junction point where suddenly these things are real. But I'm thinking about the guided weapons enterprise and the way that the Australian government and defence organisation are taking that forward. They're saying, look, you know, these are very complex technology items. The big American companies, someone like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon, they've got decades of expertise, very complex manufacturing, very complex supply chains. To produce something like a like a missile, which actually has many similar attributes in technology terms to some of, some of the things you're doing, we've got to take a crawl, walk, run approach. So, you know, we'll first work to assemble a reasonably simple one of these American products. And then after we've done that for a few years, we will have learnt we can walk to do maybe a longer range version. And then maybe we can even start making a new design later. So that crawl, walk, run. And to me, that still sounds, is that 10 years? Is it 15 years away? What's your approach? So, yeah, I think certainly when it comes to the sorts of technologies that we're looking at with with Speartooth and and these companies like Oceus and and us at Citra Robotics and, and Andrel as well are showing that, you know, we can really leapfrog the crawl and walk stage. I think what is being developed in, in all of these cases is we are able to produce in Australia by Australian industry absolutely world-leading capability that is going to be at the run stage in the very near term. So I think whether that applies more broadly, um, I guess every technology has its its limitations as to, to how big the steps are, t- are needed to take and how big the investment is and what the timelines are. I think with the previous investment that has been made with developing these under these development programs that, that we've been part of uh, with ADF over the, the years behind us, it's it's now got us to the point where we can run now. Well, a couple of things really pop out of this to me, which is you've spent a quarter of a century getting yourself and your company and colleagues to this point. And now this is a time where Australia's security really needs to take advantage of that. So it's fantastic to hear that long-term, very practical uh, career that you've had. And uh, to me, when I look at that big announcement from the government about the Navy, I'd love there to be a second parallel announcement very soon. You know, who knows? The May budget that says says the small and the smart and the many are real and Australian companies are delivering that to uh, help with our security in our part of the world uh, and with our big partners and allies. So, Tom, thanks so much. Great pleasure to be here, Michael.